Hi, I'm your host, Alan Cowley, and welcome to another insightful Invested Investor podcast. This week, I'm delighted to be joined by Reese Chowdhury. Reese is a founder and CEO of RLC Ventures, a multi-award winning venture capital firm. RLC are the only venture capital firm with the Venture Impact Pledge, which you'll be hearing more about in this podcast, along with what his motives are for investing in certain sectors and, and, and companies. Alongside his investing, Reese has been nominated for and won multiple awards and is a regular speaker at industry and academic events. So, Reese, a portfolio of investments totaling over 40 companies That's often right. starts with an entrepreneurial exit. But what's your background and how did you transition into investing? Thanks for having me, first of all. Um, my background is probably slightly different to your typical angel or VC. Um, I actually started my investment career very, very early on in my life. And, you, you know, for anyone who's at, done any angel investing or VC investor, they know it's a long, long, as I always say to people, uh, start early as possible. And I started very, very early at the age of 13. Wow. Um, and, and it was actually uh, my father, who has a background in financial services and listed stocks, actually, uh, said to me on my, actually, my 13th birthday, he said, um, would you like to put some money into um, a company that you like? And I said, well, yeah, I'll put my own savings. Thank you very much, Dad. And um, this instead of like a birthday present or something? Uh, well, I think he, his birthday present wasn't actually giving me any money because he's, you know, he's very much like you kind of do it yourself and, you know, build your own. Uh, it was like, if you would like to put this trade on for you, I will facilitate that for you. And I said, okay, that's quite a nice little gift. Um, and, you know, I don't know what the commission is, but it's not, it wasn't that much. But um, so I said, okay, dad, I will um, put some money uh, into Apple. Uh, and this is, this is the time when Apple was like a bit of a, an alternative thing. You know, it's the full, uh, you know, Steve Jobs had come back and, you know, he just launched the iPod and, you know, it was still, you know, for the people that really are, into graphic design and music and this this is still at this era right so i said dad uh, i want to put it to apple because i i bought an ipod i loved it people thought i remember taking it to school and people think oh, that's never going to catch on having music in your pocket like that you know people are still using cds and mini discs and you know and so i did it and it was one of those things that i i really looked at the company i thought you know what's the pro- a very product centric guy i've always been quite focused on product and and I invested and I left it for a long time, a long time, I think probably something like 12 years. And, you know, this was um, the catalyst for my interest in investing, particularly in technology. And, you know, I went away, went to university at Durham, um, studied international business there, and then went definitely down more the corporate route um, went to the graduate scheme at EY, was in uh, the technology consulting division at EY, loved it. I was there for four years, chartered as a management accountant. And then after about four years, I thought, you know, I've seen these big organizations like the Lloyds Banking Group and, you know, EDF Energy and all these great companies that are, you know, FTSE 100, you know, build different areas of technology. And I was involved a lot in financial services. And I thought, right, I'm going to take the leap now. And I don't actually, I didn't actually know what I was going to do at that leap. I actually took a six month sabbatical and I, and an EY, a very good employer like that. They said, take six months off. And if you want to come back, you can come back. Yeah. And, and actually 90% of people don't come back. And I didn't, I handed my resignation for one day and left the next day. Yeah. And, um, 
Uh, after that, I thought, oh my God, what am I going to do? And so I used a, lot, a little bit of the savings I had from my early investing career, which I locked away. And I thought to myself, I want to be, you know, I want to do something in the, as a, as a founder. I want to really understand how to build a company, probably use my background with my relationships with EY and, you know, kind of the business to business relationships I built up and kind of do something within financial services. And so what I did was I was, right, okay, um, what's the best way to do this? So I thought, I always loved working with smart people. So my initial start to my investing journey on the angel investing career was actually investing in some very early stage idea companies. And these, these, the, the reason I did this was not because I had this grand plan of what we're doing now, is because I always thought to, to be a respected investor, you've got to understand where the founders are, are coming from. So it really, it really feels like, you know, those kind of initial angel checks were very small. They were like, you know, 10, 20 grand, basically, and you got your EIS and SEIS wrappers. Um, but what they allowed me to do is I said, I'm going to put this money aside as if I'm not going to go to do an MBA. I'm going to do this to learn how to operate a startup. And if anything comes of it, that's great. But if it doesn't, I've just got a good learning experience. But you say learning how to operate a startup there. You obviously weren't running the company or did you co-found them? Yeah, so I wasn't running the company, but it was a very much a day-to-day, oh, sorry, it was very much a day-to-day involvement in the company. You know, we had, you know, WhatsApp groups. Every meet, every week we'd be meeting up, discussing, you know, the key KPIs. I was doing, court, you know, introductions. I wasn't, you know, down there building the code, but I was very much part of that founding team. And, you know, some of those companies I still am, you know, uh, there's one in, sitting in my office today. So, um, you know, you see all the highs and lows, you experience all the highs and lows. And I think that's really helped me on my journey as to becoming an investor, because I can really empathize with, you know, companies running out of money and I've been there down in the woods, you know, doing whole sales cycles with them, you know, everything from like the you know, code mucking up and you know, I've been in every single scenario, founders leaving, uh, everything, you know. So I think I've seen a lot in my uh, career now uh, over the past, I think, four or five years now. So so where did you actually find these companies? You say that you've, you, you had a few and yeah. you've got one in your office yeah. here. Where did you find them? That is, is a very good question. And, it, and obviously having the corporate background, I did. I, I, I just, after I left, I just, decided I'm just going to speak to everybody. And it was one of those things that I was like, look, I'm thinking I'm going, I'm going to start, you know, I want to be in the startup scene. And so I reached out to advisors I knew from EY days, from my previous family, friends. I just, like, for the initial, like, first couple of months, I was just, like, speaking to everyone. And I was kind of connecting the dots. And I think, looking back, it wasn't a bad thing, but I probably would advise have a bit more tactic to it, uh, if anyone's... Well, you, you, you were feeding, uh, feeding, feeling the ground as you were going along, weren't you? That was your initial way of doing it. And everyone needs to take a plunge at some point if they're going to invest, so why not do it the way you did it? Yeah, and I think I think over the last um, few years, I've seen like a dramatic increase of people wanting to get involved in the startup, becoming an angel investor. And I looked at the landscape particularly, and I thought oh my God, there's no one investing like me. I'm a young person. Most of these founders are young and they're coming out of, you know, McKinsey or, you know, or doing something, you know, like similar to me. I'm sure they can relate to, to me at a personal level. You know, um, I, I also don't look like, uh, you know, obviously being from an Asian background, I don't look 
like every, every other angel investor. So this must be some advantage to me. And, 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 and I actually thought to myself like this, and, and, and it was true. I think that that really did help in, the, in, in those early days because, you know, in competitive funding rounds, getting onto the cap table is hard if, you're, if you haven't got, you know, the level of experience I have now versus then. So what was the angle that I kind of pitched myself? I said, look, I'm not all like all the other angel investors. I'm going to be with you for the ride. I'm going to get my hands dirty. I'm going to be here. I can do this. And I think my enthusiasm got me onto the cap table in those instances. So um, and this is what I always advise. It's not all about the size of your check often. It's about, you know, how much the founders, you know, it's a personal relationship a lot of the time. And these guys... Um, are going to be with you and you're going to be with them um, for longer than most people's marriages. So uh, I think this is the mindset I had had with it. And I think this still serves me quite well today, I think. Yeah, you're talking about pers- on a personal level there and how you identified that you were kind of similar age, age range yeah. and, and everything like that. How did you identify that? Because like, that does come with experience to understand that and understand that it's about the team and mm-hmm. building a relationship with these these founders. How where did you where did you get that? From? I think it's definitely through my EY days. You know, you're thrown in the deep end in consulting, management consulting, in a place you don't know, often in a location which is far from glamorous, and you've suddenly got to have a, a very big impact. And you know, the the day rates that you know, I won't disclose them on this, but like it's, it's astronomical. And then I can't even justify that to myself, never mind the client. So um, you have to find a way of being very up to speed in something you don't know and also relate to the environment you're in very quickly and build a very good rapport with your client and demonstrate value. And I think this was the skill that I really took away from those days and implemented into my angel investing career. Now, obviously, with our funds are on the VC side. So, um, yeah, that's that's what I would say on that. That's good. Um, also, you, you talked about being, obviously, you're, we're probably about the same, same age, aren't we, in um, early 30s? Yeah, just turned 30. Yeah. So just turned 30. And, and so you started four or five years ago. And you're saying that you're on a personal level and you're that sort of age. Yeah. How did that compare then when you had the typical angels, you know, these yes. predominantly white, yes. Saxon men, yeah. normally whatever it is. Um, how did you find that experience? And, and did you find any hostility because of your age or anything like that? No, I think they were very, very accommodating. And if uh, actually, I think the, the older angels that I dealt with were like seeing someone like me as a bit of a protege to them. And it's the same with me now. A lot of young people still look at look at me and say, "Look, you're a young guy. Like, how can I be like you?" And you know, there's not many people that are like you in our industry. And I say, "Look, the the thing that you need to do is be transparent and need to take advice from people that have been there before." And I've done that. Uh, I think you know, even with RLC, what we've done with our advisory board for our startups is, you know, we've got people on there, you know, have taken companies from 3 million to 3 billion market cap. And this, this, you know, and if to have them on the end of a phone, when you, and, and company, you know, we, we just had this morning, there was a gentleman in our office who used to be the head of um, private equity deals for PwC for 30 years. And he's done thousands of deals. And, you know, you know, and we are, and he was advising one of our founders saying, look, you know, this is this is what's happening and, you know, around this M&A process. And I thought, wow, you know, to have that level of insight, you know, and we've I think just being around those kind of people 
um, is, is fantastic. And that's how you really learn. And this, is, this was always like what, and I think if you're open to the learning part, this industry is changing all the time. And I think the learning is the most important part of, of this. And people are very open when you, when you want to learn and you're humble enough to say that and you don't know everything. And, I'm, and even today, every day, I'm surprised. Someone on my team, someone on a founder, they teach me something every single day. And, I'm, and my mind is open to that. And I think and I'll never stop learning. And this, this is what it's kept me going every day and what I love about the job, actually, more than anything. It's brilliant to mm. see that passion and obviously passion behind learning as well. Um, you just talked about your team there and let's, let's just move on to RLC Ventures then. Um, so it's been going for about four or five years? Yeah, so it's about three and a half, four years now. And, and how, many, um, how many companies do you have on the portfolio? So we have around 40 companies in the portfolio um, and we've invested, we've done two funds now. Um, so we have an SCIS, EIS fund. So typically we invest, uh, we raise that uh, every 18 months, I would say, and then deploy it over the next 18 months or so, usually over two tax years, um, which is slightly different to some of the other EIS funds. And we just wanted to feel like we want a longer period of time to, to invest our money because uh, we didn't want to be driven by like a deadline of the 5th of April. And I think this has worked well for us, actually, in a lot of ways. Um, but yeah, so... Um, our model is very similar to that. My, my angel investing mindset. Um, we have a, a fund which, you know, will invest anything from 25K to 500. And we have a very active angel syndicate that invests alongside our fund in, in, into uh, the underlying companies as well. So um, the, the areas that we focus on particularly are four kind of key verticals. Um, so enterprise businesses, um, we've done, I would say, 50 or 60% of the portfolio in enterprise businesses. Um, the other sector would be financial services technology. Given our backgrounds, our partners' backgrounds, our advisors' backgrounds, we are naturally gravitating to this, to this field. And well, I actually saw something, in, I think it was on LinkedIn, that there's about 50% of all investments at the moment in the UK are fintech, aren't they? So isn't everyone gravitating there? It, it is, it is, and it is, it is. And I think, I think it's given the UK's history, it's very understandable. And it's a really good intersection of regulation, technology, and finance. And London is beautifully placed in all of those ways and the UK generally um, and I think um, that's why and I think as a sector there's so many verticals that have spun out you know uh, we were discussing before InsureTech and um, we've got a great company in our portfolio Risk who, who, who are fantastic InsureTech company and um, and you know you've got lending and you know consumer and there's so many different angles to it. It's like it's very broad brush, and I think to say fintech and yeah, yeah, if you have to dive down, I think they need to break it up. And so <laughs> I've been saying for a while they need to break it up and into different areas rather than just an overarching word. Just one, yeah. Um, sorry, I, I stopped you there. So, sure. so the, the second one's fintech, and then the other one, um, the third one is gaming. Yeah. So we love gaming business. We're doing ex a really cool gaming business at the moment, um, and I think one. I think VCs and angels, I think look at it as a bit of a oh I don't know about that sector. But for me, it really ticks the boxes in terms of what a good investment looks like. Um, and and I'll just touch on that briefly for the for the audience. I think I think a, a game a game a game developer or someone in the gaming industry it has such, you know, it's a bigger than the cinema industry. 
now. And I think you need to, to, to dial... There's a company that we're investing in at the moment. It's, it's completely bootstrapped. And um, it's been going for, I think, three, or, three years. And they've had five million people play their game. And this is on no funding, no marketing spending, because the scale of, of what you can achieve in that, in that industry is phenomenal. And I think, I think the industry of VCs and angels are starting to catch on a little bit more. Uh, Andreessen and Horowitz wrote a very good article recently about gaming and why they're backing more gaming companies. And my thesis is the same. Extremely scalable, extremely viral, um, huge market potential, and, you know, can be well, and the cost base can be very well controlled. And you know, could do B2B angles, you can do B2C, you can do B2B2C. And so these, these are the factors I really like in the gaming sector. And I think, again, the UK is well positioned because, um, you know, if you look at the historically, we've had, you know, some big gaming studios come out of the UK, um, the likes of Rockstar Games, etc. And um, I think, you know, it's, it, it's kind of like the financial services, the intersection of talent and technology and, 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 and history. And so this is why I like it. And then um, and the last section I think we like is um, the classic, you know, artificial intelligence style businesses. So we're companies in our portfolio, such as Winning Minds, who are um, a voice, a deep tech voice business, basically. It's an interesting one. They, they spoke to me the other day and they came to the office. They said, said, what are you guys doing? And, and a lot of our, it's uh, a, a really interesting business where essentially what they do is they analyze people's voice in different scenarios and tells um, a, an individual like, this person has been assertive. This person has been like dominant, and and where they're actually applying it at the moment is in esports. Okay. Esports teams. So esports teams will record their activities. They will send it off to winning minds, and winning minds will come back and say that person talked too much, and then they can cross and they can, that person was really assertive. That person didn't say anything. And they're almost becoming like an API business where you send off something that you're doing and it comes back with some visuals around like, you know, this this is what your team like dynamic is. And this is a really interesting business in our portfolio. Um, no, I can imagine people, um, public speakers as well, that would be beneficial to you, wouldn't it? Exactly, exactly. People you know. need to public speak. Yes, no one likes it, right? No. <laughs> exactly. um, and then we've got some, uh, yeah. So I think the last uh, few companies that we've invested in, uh, I can just touch on them so people can get a flavor of what, we, what we're investing in and where we, in, what stage we invest. There's one company called Green Deck, which is a uh, B2B business that does online pricing for um, retailers, online retailers. So they've got clients like um, Showroom Privé, um, Into Group, or the shopping center. And ha- they help, you know, uh, clients with, you know, if it's Black Friday, how many of your competitors are discounting a white T-shirt? They solve those problems for, for online retailers, which is a big problem. And we invested um, in them a couple of, uh, three or four months ago. And one of the theses that we've really built out with RLC is that we've focused um, on companies that are based in the UK, but then also have an emerging market presence. So this is like uh, one of the things we really focused in on because we found that one of the key um, elements to success a startup is talent. And talent isn't necessarily, you know, defined within the barriers of the UK. It's very global now and the world 
are, is a very global place. So, you know, if you can start a company, you know, we have them essentially based in the UK, their, you know, main operations, but then they will have like often, you know, a sales function in Bulgaria or a tech base in India. And Green Deck is one of these examples where they have a tech base. And just to give you some comparison on costs um, and, and productivity, um, the Green Deck team initially when we invested is, is higher now was uh, we're doing around 10,000 monthly recurring revenue. And, uh, and I said to them, oh, guys, you must be burning through loads of money. And he's like, yeah, we've got a team of 15 people in India. And I said, okay. And he says, but we're profitable. And I said, wow, uh, <laughs> you've got a team of 15 in India and you're profitable. He says, we're in the city called Noida. It's not a main city. It's, and we get every single person from the university dying to work for us. And, you know, we're paying them a very good salary. We're the best salary in the whole of the region. But, you know... Instead of, you know, equivalent to uh, 20 grand a month for a machine learning engineer person, they're paying 500, you know. So this is like a huge, I mean, how can you compete if you're, you know. And so we've really teased out the thesis a lot more. We've got companies in Bulgaria and Vietnam, in India, in, um, in Lithuania. And so it's not core to our thesis, but we love if they've got an angle, uh, in that space as in they've got an angle when you invest or they're willing to so when we when we invest we uh, um we like the fact that they have and we like the fact that if it's their own operations it's not they've outsourced some tech to a third party offshore it's like they've got a, a base and also from a global perspective going forward you know they could sell into new markets as a platform from those bases because often they start off doing you know maybe more i would say you know technical work or back office work but then they can develop potentially a sales function out the back of those those kind of regions as as it were and this is i suppose where we're different from a lot of the other kind of EIS, SCIS funds or other funds in the market that we specialize in this. Uh, yeah. So. How, how does that work in terms of the founders then? Is this founders that have come from emerging markets or they've just noticed that, you know, that's the way to cut costs and find some decent, decent talent? Um, so I'll give you some examples on the portfolio. So we have um, a company in our portfolio called Betting Metrics. Um, and they essentially what they do is if anyone knows the uh, website eToro on the financial services they essentially allow um, you know uh, people in the gaming industry gambling industry to go on compare the odds um, place a bet on the site analyze your performance on the site and also compare all the tipsters that are giving you tips on what horse race to back or football match to bet on and you could follow them so this is like an end-to-end platform that our founder, uh, Martin, has created. And he's a great founder. He was from Bulgaria originally. And he came to university in London. And then he uh, raised some funding from us, uh, kind of idea stage funding. Uh, we did the second round as well. And then he went back to Bulgaria and he, he lives in Bulgaria. Yeah. But then he commutes uh, every month to come and see us. And this has worked exceptionally well. And so sometimes um, it's, there's a number company we're investing in now. I can't say the name of it. Um, but the individual has been brought up in the UK, everything in the UK, but then created a satellite office in Eastern Europe. Yeah. And so it works those two, two ways, like usually. And both ways are equally, equally good. I think it's just a question of making sure you commit to coming back here or being here if you're not basing yourself here. 
So like the Green Deck team, they're actually based in India, but they have three co-founders, four co-founders, sorry. And um, one of them is always in the UK at all stages. So this works very well if you have... Connection uh, to you guys as investors. Yeah, correct. What about the disadvantage of this then? For you and for the companies, yeah, the disadvantage is that kind of you know um, we, we we you know we have a very strong relationship with our founders. Uh, we surveyed all our founders, and we have a hundred percent founder approval ratings. I.e., they would recommend us to any other person that would want money. Um, and I think the 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 thing is we you know, have a more of a Skype relationship or a Zoom or whatever it may be than, you know, the face-to-face, you know, and a lot of investors like that, you know, face-to-face contact time. And, you know, there's a lot of people in Cambridge who are like, I'm not going to invest outside of Cambridge for that pure reason. Um, And I think, you know, there is a disadvantage. You can't look somebody in the eye and say, this is what I think and this is how it should be. And, um, yeah, I think that's one thing. I think, you know, there can be a slower pace of, of growth potentially because of just the communication speed, you know, that lean startup methodology that a lot of startups use. Um, but I think in the long run, my experience is that startups need time. And no matter where you're based or how much money you raise, you're going to have to change the thing you started off doing. And the best companies in our portfolio, and this, I think a lot of investors will say that, are probably not the ones you thought are going to be the best. And, and that's because, um, you know, they've had, and in our portfolio particularly, they've had the runway to do that on, on very small checks, actually, you know. You know. And, and what people can achieve with very little money is a, really incredible, actually. And, 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 and this is what I think, why the portfolio have done well because they've been to take 24 months in development and pivot two times and not having to raise more than 300k to do that you know and then tell me what you can do that in london you know it's like nothing you know unless you like probably seven months if you're lucky you know so um so do you think that's on the back of being in these emerging markets then absolutely and think a mixture of bootstrapping and understanding that and the emerging market correct and this is this is kind of like where we've homed it on and and try to focus our energy. Saying that, they don't always have to be completely, you know, if we find businesses that we really can love and work to, and a yeah. good example is a company in Bristol called Scribeless, yeah. which has been an investment we led this year, and, and they are a fantastic company and allow you to um, send a handwritten note at scale to, you know, everyone and everyone, and, you know, you, you literally should test it. It's done on, printed on a normal A4 printer, but you would never know it's not a handwritten note. And you think about, you know, we're going, going through an election at the moment. Think about some of the political parties. And, you know, that, that is a very useful tool for a lot of people, you know, sending out Christmas cards, et cetera, and do exceptionally well. But they're based in Bristol. They don't have that emerging markets thing. But, you know, it was an enterprise fit. It was the right stage. Uh, team was excellent. very scalable. All those great things that we, you know, every investor will probably come and say. And so, you know, when, when there's an opportunity like that, you know, we will, we will jump at it. So uh, that's... I think I actually saw them at Set Squared event fairly recently. Probably that's right. One of you at. Yeah. yeah. Um, and we actually had Simon Bond Set Squared a few weeks ago on here. Um, so let's let's just carry on with RLC because I know there's something that makes you guys a little bit different from other firms other than the emerging market. Sure. So can you just talk about that and and how? Well, no. Let's just let's just hear what it is first. And yeah, I, th- I think the one thing that we we've always tried to do is 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 have something different around. Um, the ethos and the culture. 
I think, and I think that was very much epitomized by our uh, venture pledge. So I think, you know, there's, there's various mechanisms in the industry where, you know, a percentage of our carry or exit profits um, are distributed in a different way. Some distribute it to other founders that they've invested in. So, you know, you might have a big exit from another founder that kind of will give you some carry and then, you know, that might be distributed to other founders you invested in who might not be so lucky. So it kind of like a collective equity kind of scheme. Um, we felt that actually um, the way we would like to have done that is we ask our founders every time we invest, what cause is close to their own heart? So this might be cancer research or mental health or, you know, um, you know, trying to solve child poverty in Asia, whatever it may be. Um, and everyone we've ever asked has something that that's close to them. They've obviously experienced Alzheimer's, whatever it may be. And um, we say to them, but if we become successful, as uh, if you become successful and we exit your investment, we will give a percentage of our carry back to founders charity, basically. And so we, are, as far as I know, uh, we are the only VC in the world that is, you know, carry is like, you know, is the ultimate for VC, right? So like to, to put your, your marker and say, look, we're going to give something back if we make this is a very bold statement in the industry in a lot of ways. And, you know, it's probably the thing that um, most people ask me about when I'm out and about and talking to people or they say, oh, that's a really good initiative. That really resonates with me. And what has that allowed us to do? It, again, it simply tells a founder how we are as a firm without us even saying, oh, we, you know, we are, you know, we're very, you know, we'll, you know, we'll be there for you and like all the rest of it. Every VC says that, right. But, you know, coming down to it, what does, what does that mean? Um, but it shows in the values of like how we care about the world, how we care about you because we're giving you that choice. And it's helped, it's helped us win deals many, many times actually. So um, I think it's been a very positive initiative for us and, you know, we would like to do some more in that, uh, other similar kind of schemes. But, you know, I think at the moment, this this kind of serves the purpose in terms of what we're trying to achieve with the firm. Does it work as a motivational tool in any way? Or is it just kind of the added bonus of working with us? Yeah, I think it's, I think it's, I think, you know, the founders that we invest in are intrinsically mo- motivated. And I think, yeah, it's, it's, it's an added bonus. And I think, um, again, it's just around the kind of culture that we portray which is the one that I think is internally internalized, but then very hard to articulate. Like we're the greatest and like, you know, we do this and do that and do this. And all the founders love us. Yeah. Like everyone does that. And everyone says that and everyone could write a good article about how much founders we support founders. But I think it just goes back to values as a company and our value as a company is, you know, you know, make sure that we give back if we're successful and, you know, we also, as a, as a company, put the onus on the entrepreneurs to make decisions. And that is articulated perfectly in that. We're not choosing the charity. They are. Yeah. And something they're passionate about. And we will support you in that journey. And it says a lot about us more than anything. So I think this is why it's been a very successful uh, scheme. And, I, I, you know, we're potentially exiting something at the moment, which is in our first fund. And, you know, hopefully we can write a nice check to... Um, I think it's the British Asian Trust who who the founder chose. So, um, yeah. It is a brilliant Look. initiative, it is. Um, we'll just take a quick break. Sure. Um, is there anything else you want to talk about? We've done really well. We've followed what I wanted uh, to talk about. Um, yeah, I don't Maybe, I don't know. 
you could have some war stories. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's talk about failures then. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, and then we'll do that, and then just go on to kind of what. Let's sort of look about into the future of it. Yeah, that's Does that, sound that sounds great. Let me let me just have a sip. <coughs> that was good. That was okay, right? Yeah, no, no, yeah. It's, it's fantastic. Yeah, that's great. Um, I just said that's a brilliant initiative. <laughs> Um, so let's just go on to, we've heard quite a lot of successes um, of, of your portfolio and, and some of the really positive things that you're doing in the emerging markets and with your um, carry to charity. But let's talk about some war stories and what have you learned from the failures and the downs and, and, and the war stories over the last four to five years? And, then, and, and there has been plenty of, the, of those stories. And actually, one thing I would just touch on briefly before we dive into that is that when we invest in every company, one of the first things we do is we set up a direct WhatsApp channel to each founder. So we're there for them whenever they need it. And it's like a direct line, a hotline. And I think, you know, that's where the world works now. So why wouldn't we do business like that? And, you know, why email and, you know, whatever? I know some other VCs use Slack and stuff, but I think this works really well um, for us. And so we get a good insight into people's thinking on a, on a daily, weekly basis. And to touch on your question, the war stories have been, they've been painful, but I think that's part of the game. I'll give you a few. Um, first one is uh, around a founder leaving, uh, you know, into a company, one year into a company, company's very, doing very well. Uh, one day the founder just packs up, leaves. We can't get hold of him. His co-founder can't get hold of him. Uh, disappears off the face of the earth for months and months and months and months. And then, you know, eventually resurface. But, you know, like, we were like, the business completely different. Like, you know, obviously we'd sit down and have an adult conversation. It all worked out in the end. And I think, you know, that, that, that individual just obviously needed that time. But it would be nice to be like checking in, and you know they were obviously a core cool part of the team. So you know, there's it's like quite a big way to step away and leave you know, COVID. Can I just touch on that? And, and you don't need to uh, I w- express yeah. what it is, yeah. but, and who it is, or anything like that. But it was that to do with um, kind of founders fatigue and the kind of mental health of running the company. It might obviously there might have been some other person mm. who did that add to it. I think I think you know with a startup, everyone has these grand ambitions of you know where you're going to be at what stage. And I think with in that scenario, I think you know there's there's an element of personality clash, there's element of we're not where we want to be, and there's an element of you know like you know we've been trying this for a long time and it's not working out. And I think there's a combination of all of that. And I think you know actually looking back in hindsight now, it was a you know it was a good decision from all parties because. Basically, the company has moved forward very quickly under very strong leadership with one clear direction. And um, actually, you know, half the time could have been fighting that battle that didn't need to be to be fought. Yeah. And so often the times when you you feel like there's just nothing that can go your way is actually you'll just look back at that uh, and think, my God, what happened? And there's, an, <laughs> there's another company. This I think this is my favorite war story, I think. And when we invest in any, any company, like any angel or VC, one of the first things we do is say to the company, how can we help you? And where we, we particularly have helped founders and we've been very successful is, you know, helping them with the next funding round or the exist, closing off the existing funding round, recruitment, 
of, of potential hires, bringing the advisory board uh, together, bring, doing platform in terms of getting their name out there, PR. We're, we're, we seem to be pretty, pretty, pretty good at that. And, and just, you know, general show demos, et cetera. Um, but one of the things um, was coming up to the last, the end of last tax year, actually. And so some of, the, some, some of our compatriots who are, uh, we have very good relationships with um, and trust us very much in, in the kind of the tax efficiency basis. I sometimes say, look, you know, we, we want to get some, we want to get some money out the door. And, you know, so if there's anything in your portfolio that you need, needs a bit of, you know, EIS or SCIS, we're happy to provide it because I know you've done all the due diligence and I know you've worked with the founders. So we kind of like trust you as a co-investment partner. And so um, that situation arose one of our portfolio. Uh, and actually the company um, was actually um, doing all right, but it was not far away from probably running out of money. And um, so we said, look, we said to the founders, look, we need to go and raise some money. It's a good opportunity to do it. I'll set you up with a meeting. I don't know where it's going to go, but basically, let's try. Yeah. And uh, it's a good time of year, so you might you might get a very... So I set them up with a meeting with a, with a VC I know very well. Um, they had one meeting with them, spoke to me for a long time, looked at all the stuff, checked the DD that we had done. So it wasn't a big decision. Loved the team. Lo- basically went on the back of my my recommendation. Got a term sheet uh, and... Uh, set to close in two weeks one of the founders said um just fine everything's fine uh you know we need the money it'll help us scale help us grow the other founder said no i don't want to take the cash and then i was sitting there saying well you know i think it's best for the business to take the cash otherwise it becomes a going concern and and you know and and so we got to this weird stalemate where essentially um, the founder, one of the founders said, no, I think we can get a better offer. The other founder really wanted to take it. And actually meant, it actually meant that basically the company was just completely restructured because they were both in a completely opposite mindsets on, on where to take the money. But actually what that did was accelerate a lot of thinking around them working together in, in the long term. And that actually just came to fruition through this exercise of putting something in place, you know, and obviously it came to it. And again, it was the right decision. The company actually restructured and into a different kind of vehicle. So uh, it meant that basically they went their separate ways into two different companies. And actually that was a great thing because actually, you know, in a year's time, they would have probably spent them the VC's money and would have probably like gone their different ways because they didn't have the same kind of vision. So this was actually a really good exercise, but it was at the time very painful because you're like, guys, come on, we've just got you something which is good. And, you know, one of your founders agrees. Every single shareholder agreed, except for the other other founder. So, but the thing is, we you could you could say, well, just take the money in that sense. But if you're left with someone on the cap table who fundamentally disagrees with what you are doing as, as, as the, the rest of the 75%, let's say, then this is no way to start a business and take people's money on. Yeah. You have to be aligned. So this... You know, this isn't the right thing to do. Is that advice to founders, um, if you do have multiple founders, yeah. to, to continuously talk to each other about where you want to go and take this business and don't leave it a year or 18 months, actually have this chat regularly? Absolutely. I would highly recommend that. You know, everyone starts off with this grand strategy and plan and, you know, and, and then it just gets caught up with, you know, doing payroll or something. You know, like you need to take time. Take time as founders. I always tell my founders, Go out the office, 
Take time with your team out the office. Do things. Go for team lunches. These is where you. This is where you tease out culture. This is where you tease out. You know your strategy. Don't be afraid to take that step out. And these are the great companies in our portfolio. Are very, very good at this. They do the soft skills very well. They know what they stand for. They know what people. They other people know what they stand for, and they do things like you know these offsite days. Build their culture. Build their brand. And the things that you don't think are important at the beginning, but if you don't lay those foundations about how something as small as how do you onboard somebody, I could tell so much about a company when I ask them that we have this pack and this is what it says and this is says about our values and this is where we do our Christmas party and you know and this is where the systems are and these are the passwords to those systems and we use whatever you know this shows me incredibly about about a company and how how they're built you know that's Jim Collins' book built to last yeah, or yeah. To last, yeah, yeah and uh so yeah this is this is what i would say okay um all right so let's just finish on the future so you're you've invested now with our still for rl rlc for about four to five years so what does the future hold for both rlc and yourself and what do you think actually and very briefly the is there any other markets you're looking at to maybe venture into in the future yeah, I think I think at the moment, the you know markets changed all the time. So um, the one thing that I'm very very passionate about, and I've spoken many times, bang the drum about this, is as a market, I I and I don't know if it's a market, but as as, as a kind of space, I'm very interested in voice. Anything in the voice space, I find very deeply fascinating. Um, if you think about just the market as a whole, um, one in five people currently have. A, a smart speaker in a, in a US home. I mean, that's an incredible statistic, right? And it's only going to get more prevalent and it's going to outpace tablet sales in the next few years. So, um, <coughs> excuse me. And so I think that's a market to watch out for, particularly in so many different angles in terms of um, in terms of the way we do business and the way we kind of play, the kind of way we live our daily lives. Um, and I think this is something that we're paying a lot of attention to, and we've already got a couple of um, interests in, 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 in the space already. Um, so we'll see how those play out. Um, as, as personally, for myself, um, my main focus is to um, build RLC up. So um, just scaling our funds, scaling our portfolio, helping our founders, and you know, turning um, RLC into... Um, a brand in its own own way, and I think we you know kind of we're on that journey to do that in a lot of ways. Um, and uh, and I think personally, I think um, I want to carry on investing. This is like you know every um, <coughs> excuse me um, every every great investor that I've ever read, you know, in times gone by, you know, say that you know you need to have a very good diverse portfolio. And I think you know. Personally, I, I love investing in different things. And I don't just invest in the UK. I invest in AngelList in the States. And that's really helped my investing career <coughs> in the UK because I've seen how other people do it at a different kind of market and a different kind of scale. And so this is what I would leave people on. And if they want to get in the industry, you know, you don't have to write big checks. You can just be passionate and you can find ways to learn. And I think one day I'm going to write a book and I swear by this and it's going to be something on the lines that like, don't waste your wet hundred grand on an MBA, put 10K into 10 angel deals and you would learn 
an infinite amount more about the world and the business and people. And there's no life lessons for that. So wait for this space. No, that is. We'll look out for it. Don't call it the investor investor. Um, <laughs> um, one last thing before I just wrap up. You talked about Apple in the yeah. first story. You made the investment over 12 years. Yeah. Did you get a positive return on that? Uh, yes. Yeah. yeah. Very, very positive very, return. Yeah, very, <laughs> yeah. um, well, Reese, it's been refreshing. Um, it shows how much value you've, you've taken from the industry already over the last four to five years and how much you're going to give over the next 20, 30, 40, 50 years. <laughs> Um, and you obviously enjoy it as well, so that's Love absolutely it. brilliant. So thank you very much. Thank you. Cheers. Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening to another Investor Investor podcast. You can subscribe to all future podcasts via our website, investorinvestor.com, or via a number of online podcast platforms. And be sure to follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook to get the most up-to-date, interesting, and insightful content.